Good morning. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verses, verse 10 through chapter 62 and verse 3, and then also from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. I hear the word of the Lord. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor and the Lord's hand, in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. In Paul's letter to the Galatians. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, every year at Christmas, it's a difficulty to try to find the perfect gift to give to someone. Am I the only one that has that problem? Uh, you know, you, and have you ever received a gift that at the time you got it, you couldn't see that you would need it? You probably have a drawer full of those type of things, right? You know, but then you're in a situation where that gift is exactly what you need. So for the person who's not, who has no mechanical inclination... You know, giving them an adjustable wrench as a gift might seem to them a waste until they come across a bolt that needs to be removed. And then all of a sudden, that wrench is their salvation. Now, those are small illustrations, but God sending us his son, Jesus, is that kind of gift for us. But when God's people didn't know they were in need of transformation, God sent his son to transform what we were, who we are, and what we will have. Now that's our outline. And so let's ponder this for, for a few minutes. God sent his son to transform what we were. Verse 7 of chapter 4 of Galatians tells us this. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. See, God sent his son to change what we were. 
We were slaves, this text tells us. Slaves to what? Verse 3 of Galatians 4 says, So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. Well, what are those? What, what are the basic principles of this world? Well, the phrase means the system by which things are, are commonly understood. It's a picture to line up your, your thoughts in, in an orderly fashion, the way one would line up the letters of the alphabet. You know, Paul points, his point is that it's this kind of basic, elementary, ABC view of the world that's slavery and childlike. So, for the Galatians... What they were encountering at the time that Paul writes this letter is that there were some Jews who were telling them that they needed to keep the law in order to be made right with God. They were telling them, get circumcised. Keep the Passover. Respect the Feast of Booths. Honor the Sabbath. Then you'll be acceptable to God. Paul is saying... Those are the ABCs. They are tutors, not intended to bring justification, but to show you how sinful you really are and how much you are a slave to sin. In our day, and particularly in Western culture, you know, we might say, here's a basic principle of the world to which people are enslaved. It's the principle of expressive individualism. Maybe you've heard that term before, but it's the idea that each person has the right to choose and believe and think whatever they desire about themselves, and you shouldn't judge them for it. It's the idea that, that you, as an individual, get to determine right and wrong for you, apart from God. You are the arbiter of truth. Now that's not new. That's not anything new. And nor is it something that's just exclusive to, to the community outside the church. But you know, those ideas have been in the church for a long time as well. And you hear it in phrases like this, I'm looking for a church that meets my needs. One blogger describes the logic of, of the expressive individualistic Christian like this. God is good. God made me. God gave me desires. Since God is good and gave me desires, then the desires I have from God must be good. And since God gave me these good desires, I have a right to express them. Well, where, have you heard, where have you heard this line of reasoning before in the scripture? was there in the garden. It was there, there, Adam. It's what the serpent was saying to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? Can't you decide for yourself? If you eat of this tree, God knows you will be like him. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can determine that. That line of reasoning, it's what the serpent used to deceive the man and the woman. And Paul would say, the basic principles to which you are enslaved. 
You're enslaved to these ways of thinking. James K.A. Smith, in his book, How Not to Be Secular, reading Charles Taylor, so James Smith, is, he's, a, he's a, a professor at Calvin College, and, he, and Charles Taylor is a, is a well-known philosopher. Uh, he's written books like The Secular Age and, uh, and books on, on how, how, do you, how you create and develop identity. But So James Smith just describes how broad the problem is. He says evolutionary psychology and expressive individualism are in the water of our secular age and only a heroic few can manage to quell their chatter and create an insulated panic room in which their faith remains solidly secure. You know what he's saying? He's, say, he's saying you can't escape it. You drink it in. And that's true, isn't it? In our culture, that expresses individualism. It's in everything. It's in TV commercials. It's in popular music. You know, it's, in, it's in movies that you see. If you've watched Frozen, you've heard the song, Let It Go. That is expressive individualism happening right there. Sorry if that's your favorite song. You know, but, but, it, but it's there. You can't, he's saying you can't escape it. And it's hard to break free. But scripture teaches us that God sent his son to transform us from slaves to sons. Hallelujah. Verse 4 and verse 5 says this, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. See, Christ changes. He changes what we were by placing himself under bondage as well. Now, see, that's what's meant when it says by under the law. And now, it's paradoxical to think that in order to free slaves, you have to become one yourself. That doesn't seem like a winning strategy. But God sent his son to change what we were. He became what we are in order to change who we are. Verse 4 through 6 again, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, how does the Son becoming like us change who we are? Well, there are two things here, two things here. One, because of whom he, the Son is, and secondly, because of his work under the law. The Greek verb, verse, because of whom he is, the Greek verb for sent appears 12 times in the Scripture, and it, and it always shows a strong, intimate connection to the place or, 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 the, or the person or the group from which they're sent. That means, that means that God didn't skimp on giving us what we needed. He sent his son. He sent his, he sent, God wanted the church, he wanted you and I to know how much he loved us. He sent his son. Therefore, John 3.16, it tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sacrifices someone close to him, intimate to him, for us. And the son is willing to do it. 
that whoever believes, the scripture says, in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. See, God said, I'm going to send the best of my love for you. I am going to send my son, who is like me, the image of the invisible God. He was from the beginning. He was with God. He is God. All things were created by him. He is full of grace and truth. In him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. God sent his son. Why? The verse 17 of John 3 tells us, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is why Paul could talk about the son's work under the law. The second thing, the second thing, because of his work under the law, no other created beings valued the law like God's Son, except the, the Son. Jesus valued the law of God as God. He said in Matthew 5:17, "Do not think I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." And in Galatians 3:13, Paul tells us how Christ fulfills the law. He said, "Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us." For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. See, this redeems us. This redeems us since Christ is not only the eternal son of God's love, but also he perfectly obeys and is therefore perfectly acceptable to God. And if the perfect son of God's love doesn't, if he doesn't take on the curse For all God's children, we would have no hope. We would have no hope, and he wouldn't have been the Savior. But according to the law, under the law, he is our substitute. And everything that he accomplished on the cross, when he takes on the wrath of God, everything that he accomplished is now applied to us since he took our place. You see see how the paradoxical works? You know, the basic principles of this world are not our salvation. The Son is. God didn't send us Isaiah. He didn't send us Elijah. He didn't send us another Moses, another lawgiver. No, God sent his Son. Hallelujah. And this changes who we are since the Son has become like us. And it has become our salvation and righteousness. And, and so the text tells us the, scripture, the Spirit witnesses to this truth. The Roman adoption laws required a witness. And this is, this is what the Galatians would have understood. Paul, said, Paul says, because you are sons, God sent his Spirit, the Spirit of his Son, to cry in our hearts, there in our inner core, where we, where, at the deepest seat of our thoughts, there the Spirit of God is crying, Abba, Father. This is witness. The Spirit is the witness. And so these are the benefits. These are the benefits of Christ changing who we are. And the text tells us in Isaiah that it came with a, a, a new wardrobe. 
Look at what he says in verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has clothed me. I didn't do it myself. He arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Salvation, righteousness, new priestly adornments. And why would you have those if you're not a priest? Bedazzling beauty. Christ provided all of this for us. God sent his son. Uh, So John Newton's heart poured all of this out. He rightly penned in the hymn, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Someone might ask, well, what is, what is this transformation for? And, and if God sending his son changes what we were and who we are, what will we have after all this change? Well, that's a good question. What will we have? So verse 7 again says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. So God sent his son, and if you're in him, he's written you into his will. Now, what does that mean? Well, so, so what does it mean that you're also an heir with Christ? Well, Psalms verse 2, Psalm 2, verse 7 and 8 describes Christ's inheritance, where he says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. God sent his son, and whatever, whatever he is given, whatever, whatever is given to him as, as his inheritance, it's ours as well. Hallelujah. <laughs> and he's given, he's given to him the nations, the scripture says. The nations belong to Christ. The ends of the earth are his possession. Now, you know... Maybe you've experienced this, and you know this to be true. You know, the knowledge, just the knowledge of an inheritance has a tendency to change folks, doesn't it? Yeah. Families that were once close be, can become extremely possessive and cutthroat at the anticipation of money that's coming their way. They might even wish their loved one to die early. Hurry up. I need that. Yeah, so, so, the, so maybe you've seen this movie, the movie Knives Out. It's a whodunit murder mystery where a detective, I won't tell you too much about it because you might want to see it, where there's a detective who's been hired to find out who killed the rich uncle before the will is read. And the backstabbing and the distrust, the, the subterfuge and, and the, the general nasty family gossip gets ugly. And of course, you know, it's Hollywood, so it's all overdone. But, but too often, this is true. What it, what it shows us, it's true. That just the knowledge of an inheritance brings out the worst in families. But that's not the way the family of Christ works. The knowledge of our inheritance is, is not to bring out the worst, but it's to develop Christ's image in us. 
The text tells us we were all former slaves who have been freed. And as slaves, we're, we were not to, we're not to receive, you know, as a slave, yeah, you wouldn't have received an inheritance. You would have been part of the property to be inherited. God sent his son. And so it begs us to ponder the depth of the transformation this gracious gift calls us to. Hence, here at the table of our Lord, when we come to the table, are we coming to express our individualism? No. No, we come, we come acknowledging our dependence on Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We come praying for a deeper grasp of our unity by the power of the Spirit. You know, when we come to, to the memorial of our, our redemption, to, we, do we come thinking about my rights, my desires, that those things are, are, are paramount? No. Since the sacrament demonstrates for us how Christ set aside his rights, set aside his own desires in order to bring us to the Father. See, when we come to the communion, do we come with knives out, holding resentments, looking at our, our neighbor or, or our brother and sister with a grudge toward, toward someone else? Do, are we looking at them like that? No, that's not to be, since we are forewarned to not, to, to not take and eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner, guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And anyone, Paul says, who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on him or herself. So here, at the table of the Lord, we pray for growth in our unity before a watching world. See, here at the table, we aren't merely looking back, longing for what we left. We are, nor are we grumbling about the present as if God is not with us. But we look forward with hope, of the hope of drinking this cup with Jesus when he returns in the new heaven and the new earth, where we are gathered with all of God's people. You see, the Eucharist, it portrays vividly that God sent his son to change what we were, who we are, and what we will have. He lifts our heads to see the world that is to come, to come to the table.